One of my uh, favorite kids' Bibles is the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you've had a baby in this church, I've probably given you one. If I haven't, I'm ashamed and just tell me and I owe you one. But uh, yeah. it has, I mean, wonderful illustrations. It does a good job with most of the, the main stories in Scripture. And maybe what I like best is nearing the end of every story, every chapter, no matter how mighty the deed or big uh, the hoopla is, at the end of almost every chapter, it hints that that's only the foreshadowing of what's coming when Christ comes. What the Jesus Storybook Bible does well, in my opinion, is that it constantly puts the big picture before us. Here's an excerpt, for example, of the material in the foreword of the book. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it, they show you how life works best. But the Bible is mainly, um, sorry, but the Bible is mainly about you and what you should be doing. That's what people think. It's really about what God has already done and who God is. The forward material continues. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, as you'll soon find out. Most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and they run away, and at times they're downright mean. No, the Bible is not a book of rules, and it's not a book of heroes. The Bible, most of all, is a story. It's an adventure about a young hero who comes from a faraway country to win back a lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. That's the, that's the line I love. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. Our story that we're going to look at this evening is no different. We're in the book of Exodus, and in the story arc of where we find ourselves tonight, God has rescued his people by sending ten horribly or horrible plagues. In fact, they get progressively horrible. The, the ninth is worse than the second, and the tenth is worse than them all. And what these plagues have done have convinced Pharaoh to let the Israelite slaves go from his land. With each plague, Pharaoh has stubbornly refused to let the Hebrew people go until the tenth plague breaks his will. Not only does Pharaoh let the people go after the tenth plague, he forces them out, sending them on their way with gifts of gold and silver and fancy clothes. The death of the firstborn children in Egypt was the cost of their sinful rebellion, and it was the cost of the Israelite freedom. This is where we pick up the story tonight in Exodus chapter 13. Stand with me, please, if you're able. And this is how the chapter goes. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both man and beast. It belongs to me. Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery. For by a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. And nothing leavened shall be eaten. On this day, in the month of Abib, you are to go forth. It shall be, when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, 
the Amorite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, which he swore to your fathers to give to you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall observe this rite in this month. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days, and nothing leavened shall be seen among you, nor shall any leaven be seen among you in all your borders. You shall tell your son on that day, saying, It's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall serve as a sign uh, to you on your hand and on, as a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, you shall keep this ordinance at its appointed time from year to year. Now, when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, as he swore to you and your fathers, and gives it to you, you shall devote the first uh, of the offspring of every womb and the first offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to the Lord. But every firstborn offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is this? What is it all about? Then you shall say to him, With a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. It came about when Pharaoh <clears throat> was stubborn about letting us go that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beasts. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. So it shall serve as a sign on your hand and as phylacteries on your forehead, for with a powerful hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Now, when God had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said, the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence God led the people around the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea, and the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. Then they set out from Succoth and camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day and led them on the way, and in a pillar of fire at night to give them light, that they might travel by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. I began this message time, whatever you want to call it, with an excerpt from the Jesus Storybook Bible. And the part I wanted to point out is that every story whispers his name, whispers the name of Jesus. Not all stories in the Bible shout out, this is about Jesus, at least not on the same wavelength that we're used to hearing it. So my job this evening is to take you on the journey that I've been on this week in this story, in this text. And what I hope to do is help us tune into the frequency so that the voice whispering the name of Jesus can be amplified and loud enough for all of us to hear it clearly. You ready? Here we go. All right. So you'll notice that there's some repetition in this chapter 13, um, some, some of the same ordinances that we saw in chapter 12. 
mainly the whole thing about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Like, he's really drilling it into their minds. You've got, I want you to, to practice this Feast of Unleavened Bread when you get to the new land, to the promised land. And of course, what we looked at before in weeks past is that this ordinance is a reminder that when God decided to rescue Israel, I mean, it happened at an instant in the middle of the night. There was no time to let their bread rise. They just had to get out with unleavened matzah, right? So this ordinance that they would practice every year reminds them of the swiftness of God's deliverance. But there's also some new material beyond just this Feast of Unleavened Bread. What is this stuff about consecrating the firstborn of children and livestock? I mean, what does that even mean? Consecrate it and redeem it. Well, Moses anticipated that people were going to ask that question. In verse 14, he writes, When your son asks you in, time, in the time to come, saying, what is this? Like, what is it all about? Right? That's what we're doing when we read this text. Um, then you shall say to him, okay, here we go. Uh, With a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. It came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about uh, letting us go that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn uh, of man and the firstborn of the cattle. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord the firstborn male offspring of every womb, but the firstborn of my children I redeem. Okay, so on the surface, what Moses, I think, is saying here is that this act of redeeming, uh, of consecrating the firstborn and then redeeming the firstborn of the human babies um, was a reminder of what happened on the night that God delivered Israel. It goes with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It happened quick. No time for leaven in your bread. And also, it cost lives. In order to break Pharaoh's will, he killed the firstborn of the Egyptians. In order to be, their houses to be passed over, the blood of the lamb was put on the doorposts. It's a reminder. So the firstborn male of each animal is consecrated. It's considered livestock. Those are the ones that are supposed to be sacrificed. Now, why were male cattle sacrificed and not female cattle? It's certainly not because they're special. It's because they're expendable. Sorry, guys. Um, you see, females give milk, and they have more babies. Uh, but in the month of Abib, when this is supposed to take place, it's in the springtime when animals have babies, and you're supposed to kill the, first, the firstborn male because, frankly, that's the kind you ate for meat anyway. Nobody ate females in those days because they... Like I said, they gave milk and other, other animals. So that's the reason for the male uh, animals. Now, does that mean that God told the Israelites to sacrifice human babies too? No, not at all. Not at all. Don't, don't freak out. The idea is that the firstborn child of each family should be consecrated, which means set aside for special purposes, set aside in service to the Lord. But rather than shipping all the firstborns off to serve in the, the tabernacle that was going to be built in years to come or in the temple that would be built later on, they could be redeemed or bought back through the sacrifice of an animal. Okay? The idea here behind all of this is that life belongs to God. Pharaoh was arrogant, placing himself in the role of God when he had the children of Israel drowned in the Nile River. God's tenth plague was a way of saying, Pharaoh, you are gravely mistaken about how much power you think you have. The emphasis on the firstborn doesn't mean that other children were less important or that they didn't belong to God. 
the issue is simply cultural. The firstborn were considered, uh, uh, consecrated because in much of the ancient world, the firstborn children would receive special training from the master of the household, from the head of the household. The firstborn would be in charge of passing down the family stories and the tribal stories. And the firstborn in Israel were in charge of passing down the covenant that God made between uh, himself and Abraham and Abraham's descendants. That role of the firstborn is keeper of the lore, the storyteller. They're the ones in each nuclear family that were supposed to continue telling the story of God's faithfulness and of his covenant. We get to verse 17, and we move out of what you would call liturgical texts. We move out of the section about, hey, remember this, this uh, sacrifice, remember this um, celebration, and we get back into the actual narrative of people leaving, the actual exodus. It says that God doesn't take them on the direct route to the promised land. Like, there's kind of a, you could follow the seacoast, and it would be much shorter to get to the promised land. It said he doesn't do that. Instead, he takes them on this roundabout way through the wilderness. The direct route would take the Israelites through enemy-occupied territory. I don't even want to say it like that. They weren't even enemies. It was people that lived there who had weapons that didn't want other people traveling through their land. So they would have to fight. And then once they, if they fought through those people and they got to Canaan and all of these places, that was occupied territory too. Nobody was living in the wilderness. Now, why would they want to avoid a fight? Come on, this is Israel. Well, because at this time, no one in Israel knew how to fight. No one. Only Moses. Moses grew up in Pharaoh's household, remember? And way back in the, when we started this series, we talked about how Moses would have received military training and history training and mathematics and language and all of these things. So Moses knows all this stuff. But the Israelites had been slaves for generation upon generation. They didn't have weapons, weren't allowed to have them, and they certainly weren't given any military training. That would be stupid. I'm going to train my slaves how to form an uprising, right? Wasn't allowed. They did not have any military training. Now, here's something that's a little confusing. Some translations of the Bible say that they were ready for battle, armed for battle. But this is almost certainly incorrect. Not because it doesn't make logical sense that you would have armed slaves, but because the Hebrew word translated as armed for battle literally means they were separated into groups of 50. You're like, how do you get from the Hebrew word for groups for 50 to armed for battle or ready for battle. Let me tell you how. Groups of 50s were one of the smallest sized military groups. That term, groups of 50, is certainly a, uh, a military term. So some of the English translators make the jump from groups of 50 to armed for battle or ready for battle. They, they're thinking, Moses put these people in groups of 50. That's a military grouping. They must be ready for battle. But what's actually happening, I think, is that Moses has arranged them in groups for mass migration. I mean, he's got tens of thousands of people, young people, old people, people in between who don't like to follow directions. And he's got to get these people out safely and travel long distances almost every day. How's he going to do that? I'm going to put them in nice groups of 50 with a squad leader in front of each one, and they're going to move out as units, okay? When I was in boot camp in 1994, 
Um, the first thing besides getting my head shorn and getting a uniform and all that stuff, making everyone look the same, is that they have to teach you how to march. Left, right, left, right. Our company, 20-some of us, had to learn how to march in step perfectly, how to walk in a straight line and march, how to stop at the same time and march, how to go backwards, marching all at the same time, turning right, turning left, going around corners in funky ways, all those crazy stuff. If you've been in the military, you know what I'm talking about. You even had to run in formation. And sometimes when we do formal things, they would give us these M1, World War I rifles, a heavy, like, oak stock. Didn't even have bullets in them. Like, we were not ready for armed conflict. In fact, the point of it, of having us march in these companies was that we were far from ready for armed conflict. What we had to learn to do was to work together as a cohesive unit. That's what you learn first in boot camp. And I think that that's what this is about. Moses is grouping thousands and thousands of emancipated Israelites into small, manageable groups of 50s so they can stay together on the long march to freedom. This group had training to do. The good news is they don't have to do it all alone. In what must have been an amazing display, Yahweh himself becomes present with them. He appears in a pillar of cloud or smoke by day, in a pillar of fire by night, so that they can travel even in low-light situations. But these pillars aren't just pragmatic, like, oh, there's the cloudy one, so now we know where to go in the day, and the fire one, so we can... Um, some people say stay warm by it or at least see in the dark. I mean, there's that, but the bigger deal is that God, the maker of heaven and earth, is present with them in a physical way that they could see. And it gave them such confidence. And later on in the story, we'll get to this probably next year, maybe in two years, actually, um, the Israelites are screwing up, you know, worshiping other gods, and God threatens to, like, remove his presence. And Moses is like, I am not going anywhere unless you go with us. Like, there's no way I can do this without your presence there. So that's what these, the, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, they represent God's very presence with the people. In fact, there's a detail in verse 19, if you're looking at your Bible, that says that they took the bones of Joseph. Remember Joseph, the multicolor coat, gets sold into slavery, becomes a prisoner in Egypt, then becomes prince of Egypt. Remember that, Joseph? Yeah, well, he died like 430-ish years before this exodus. But before he died, he had the presence of mind to say, hey, when you guys finally make it out of here, because God's going to fulfill his promise to bring you to the promised land, I want you to take my bones with you. I want to be buried in that land of God's promise. Well, here's the interesting thing, is that in Hebrew, um, the line, God will surely take care of you, and she'll carry your bones from here with you. And actually, if you have a fancy study Bible, it probably says right in your margin. But it actually says literally, God will surely visit you, or God will surely be present with you. Ah, oh, snap! Do you see it? The pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, is this fulfillment of God's presence coming to dwell. Joseph had an inkling of it. Maybe he spoke better than he knew back then. But he's talking about God's presence coming with them on the way to the promised land. All right. I don't know if you guys caught it, but Ryan and Christine, when they were planning this set this week, they threw in some 80s tunes, right? Some, some goodies, some oldies, right? So for a sermon illustration, I'm going with an 80s movie reference. You ready for some Karate Kid, yo? Karate Kid? All right. Karate Kid. Daniel LaRusso, in his summer before his senior year, moves from Jersey to L.A. Talk about culture shock. 
Then he meets this hottie that he starts to date, Elizabeth Shue. Remember? Oh, I had a crush on Elizabeth. Anyway, he starts dating Elizabeth Shue. I don't know what her character's name is, but problem is, her ex-boyfriend was Johnny. Johnny knew karate. Johnny wanted to put Daniel-san in a body bag, bro. So he and his friends beat up Daniel because they don't like him, and Daniel comes in with all these bruises, and like the groundskeeper to the low-rent apartment complex that Daniel and his mom are living in is run by Miyagi, right? And so Miyagi, yeah, he finds out Miyagi knows karate, and so he asks Miyagi to train him. And you know how this goes, right? So he comes for the training for day one, and he has him painting this fence, like just all day he's painting the fence, and he's like, keeps on moving his hand, no, do it like this, up, down, up, down. At the end of the day, I mean, Daniel is ticked. He's like, hey, I want to learn karate. He's kind of like Luke when he wants to go get the power converters, right? Just like this punk, right? Just like, I'm not, hey, I'm gonna, I want to learn karate. You got me painting this fence. Okay, just come back next, next tomorrow, Daniel's son. And so he comes back, and he's got all these classic cars, and he says, okay, I want you to wax these cars. You know, wax on this direction, wax off this direction. You know how this goes, right? So at the end of that day, Daniel's is done. Sore shoulder, all that jazz. He's like, you're just using me. Like, I don't want to be a fool. I'm done with you. And then Miyagi kind of opens his world and says, show me paint the fence, right? Oh, I get goosebumps. I was such a nerd back then with that. You know, the paint the fence, it's like, and the wax on and the wax off, these are all like basic karate moves. And he's building Daniel-san's muscle memory. Oh, so good, right? Which brings us to how painting the fence of consecrating the firstborn and the wax on, wax off presence of Yahweh in the wilderness is a whisper. Stay with me now. <laughs> I deserve that. It's a whisper of how, of how we're going to see Jesus, and I want to help amplify it for us. Throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, Israel, in a collective sense, like the people of Israel, was referred to by God himself multiple times as my son, my firstborn son. Did you hear that? Multiple times in the Hebrew Scriptures, Israel as a nation, as a people, is referred to by God as my firstborn son. As the firstborn, Israel was given special blessing by God in order to share the good news of God's covenant with the world. The Exodus event was a defining moment, a story that the Israelites would continue telling for generations about how God rescued them from slavery. But we're just scratching the surface. The problem was that their slavery ran deeper than being merely held in captivity by Egypt. What we see in Scripture is that Israel, like everybody else, like us included, has been enslaved by her own sin. You know, say what you will about the goodness of humanity. We all, when we really look at our hearts, have a bent toward selfishness. We all have a bent toward independence from God. I can do it myself, thank you very much. And... From time to time, if we really look in the mirror, we have a bent towards outright evil. And that doesn't mean, I, I feel like I, I want to say this, I don't need to say it. That doesn't mean that people, all kinds of people, Christians, non-Christians, that does not mean that people never do good and beautiful things. In fact, it should not surprise us at all when people do good and beautiful things. Why? Because you and everybody else is made in the image of the living God. It's like what we're created to do. The problem is that we are enslaved by sin, and far too often we screw it up. We don't have the power or the perspective 
to solve our slavery to sin issue by ourselves. We need someone else to redeem us. We need someone worthy. We need someone to do what Israel could not do. We need a better firstborn son of God. Oh, okay. Interesting then, I find, that like Israel, Jesus of Nazareth went down to Egypt when his life was in danger. I remember a certain famine when Jacob sent certain sons down to Egypt to be rescued, to find life. Once the famine subsided, the people of Israel broke out of slavery and went to the promised land. Once the threat to Jesus' life ended, Jesus, as a young boy, left Egypt and went back to the promised land. Jesus goes through the waters of baptism like Israel went through the waters of deliverance. Jesus goes into the wilderness like Israel and resists the temptation of the evil one, unlike Adam and unlike Moses-led Israelites. Moses went up on a mountain to receive the law of God. Jesus goes up on a mountain to reveal the heart or the ethic behind God's law. Jesus fulfills the mission of the firstborn, fulfills the mission of Israel in his life. He becomes the firstborn of God, but this firstborn doesn't merely pass down the covenant to future generations. He makes a new covenant in his blood. Jesus doesn't need to be redeemed by some animal. In fact, he's the one who gives his life to redeem us. It's so good. God is a God who rescues and the rescuer is Jesus. Sometimes, when we get a little too comfortable with the idea of Jesus um, dying for us, we talk about salvation like, like you go in the grocery store and you put a bunch of stuff on the conveyor belt and you realize you're a little short when you get to the cash register. You know, embarrassing, what do I take back? Certainly not the ice cream, right? And Jesus is like this benevolent, kind man who comes up behind you and sneakily like covers it. And then you kind of never see him again, and that's kind of, you know, he paid my debt, and that's kind of what we do with Jesus sometimes. Like, it's really nonchalant. Um, but Jesus is a, actually a lot more like Chad Thomas, who the other day when we were at Avenue Bread together, I realized I did not remember my wallet. Chad paid for my coffee, but then we sat down together and had a conversation and prayed together. And while the coffee was great, the best thing is that Chad was present with me. We have a relationship, that there's depth there. Now, Chad is a great guy, but I'm sure he will not disagree when I say, Jesus is better. <laughs> Even greater. Let's see how this next passage whispers his voice, and then see if we can't amplify it. God is present to Israel in this story in pillars of cloud and a pillar of fire. Cloud and fire. We've seen this before. In 1 Kings 8.10, Solomon builds a temple for God, and then God's presence fills that temple. Let me read the text. It happened that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Levitic, Leviticus 16.2 says that God will appear as a cloud over his mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. And then, maybe one of the more powerful texts that often gets overlooked is Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel tells us because of Israel's repeated, and I mean repeated idolatry and 
uh, not heeding warnings, he says that the Israelites will not only suffer exile, exile, but that the presence of the living God will leave the temple, will leave the people. God's glory, his presence departs from the temple. So by the time we get up to the, the couple centuries before Jesus, we often focus on that people were longing for a Messiah. And that's true. I mean, they were longing for someone to rescue them from repeated occupation, the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans currently when Jesus was there. And that is true. People were looking for a Messiah to come rescue them militarily. But there's a whole other aspect to this. People were waiting for the presence of God to come dwell among them to be fully present again like he was in the wilderness. There was a hearkening back to those days when he was present in the temple that Solomon built and when he was present with the mighty Moses and the people of Israel in the wilderness. There's a longing for God to be close again. And then we read descriptions of Jesus in his ministry. Descriptions like that of the Apostle John who said that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word of God, the Creator God, became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us, just like the tabernacle in the desert. Jesus, God's presence in our very midst, the hope of all Israel was fulfilled in Jesus. And in Luke 9, Jesus is on this mountain where he's transfigured, he's glorified before three of his closest disciples, John and James and and, um, uh, Peter. Thank you. (laughs) Peter, I got the brothers. Thank you, brother. Jesus is there talking on this mountaintop with Moses and Elijah, two dead guys, right? Obviously living with the Lord. And suddenly, they were taken up in a cloud. God's presence comes out of this cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. But Jesus, even if he is God present with the apostles in the New Testament, yay, he ascended into heaven, as Jeff read earlier, in a cloud. Oh, that's too bad he's not with us now. How could he be present with us now if he went up in a cloud? Jeff told us from Acts chapter 1 and 2, cloud and fire. Jesus ascends in a cloud, and then the Holy Spirit descends upon the followers of Jesus as tongues of fire. Oh, so good. Cloud, fire. Are you getting it? Whispers. Hope that's amplified. Brothers and sisters, the good news of Jesus is that he is the firstborn, and he died for us. He, in his person, takes away our sin and its consequence, which is death itself. But that's not all. It's not just a transaction. He's present with us now. And not even externally like he was for the Israelites. I mean, that would have been cool. And sometimes I I wonder if it'd be cooler to have the spectacular, but then when I really process it, it's way cooler that he's not stuck in one spot. That he's present with all of his believers in us, both when we gather and in our hearts as well. It's not a matter of us having to wonder Does God love me? Am I good enough to approach him? Was I good enough this week to earn his attention? God's not like you and me. He's not on his smartphone when we're trying to get his attention. 
He's not keeping score of your performance to see if you earned the right to be in his presence. The question is not, will God be with me? The question for baptized believers in Jesus is, will I be present to him? What an amazing gift that the creator of heaven and earth dwells in you and in me and in our presence right now as the gathered community. I can guarantee you that whatever it is you're facing, joy, sorrow, peace, or great challenge, he's with you. And he wants to he wants your invitation. Take him to work. When you're up at night anxiously thinking about the bazillion things you left undone or you've got to do, invite him in. Where are you present in this, Lord? He's there. He's actually got some answers for you. Such good news. If you haven't yet experienced the presence of Jesus in your life, both in his forgiveness and in his life-giving presence, hear the invitation to come to him. And the biblical word is repent of your sin. That has connotations with mean people with signs. All that means is do an about face. It's an opportunity to turn around. Say, yeah, I've been running from you, but I'm sensing a knocking on my heart. I want to let you in. It's kind of as easy as saying yes and as complicated as saying what next. And if you already identify with Jesus through repentance in the past and through baptism, hear the good news afresh. You, as you sit now, no matter how you came into this place tonight, you're a new creation. New creation. Everything now is grace. He's not keeping tabs on you. Everything now is invitation. So, don't think of it as, oh, I'm so bad, I haven't been connecting with the Lord. (laughs) He's not thinking that way. Think of it this way. How can I see Jesus in my work? He's there. How can I see him in my home situation? Maybe it's going really well, and you think you don't need him. Hey, give him praise for how it's going. Or maybe you're struggling. Maybe home is lonely. Maybe home is filled with conflict. Maybe home is not a sanctuary for you right now. Jesus, where are you in that? He's there. We just need to slow down and look. Seek and you will find that you are not alone. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, for your word that whispers to us. In fact, I would argue uh, often shouts to us of your loving kindness, your mercy, and your grace. Thank you that every story uh, has grace in itself, but also points to Jesus. Lord, I, I, I like and agree with the words that I preached. I have experienced your presence many times such that I cannot deny it, and yet I confess, and I, I'll just take a leap and say we confess uh, that we don't abide in your presence as regularly as we could. And I thank you that you're not keeping score, you're not angry keeping track, but that you 
like a loving father, just so desire us to thrive. Help us, Lord, to put away the crutches, the things that we've been leaning on that don't really give life. And help us, Lord, to see where you're at work among us. And help us to rejoice and to abide in you and to drink from your life-giving water.